Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you all for coming this evening to this uh, very special, this very special pre-Purim moment of inspiration, moment of learning together. This, uh, the genesis of our learning this evening actually is um, in honor and in memory of Dr. Dale Pianco. This is. Uh, a dedication that her family has made this year in honor of her. Um, Dale was a beloved member of our community for many, many years, a friend to so many. And even when the Piancos moved down south to Florida, we still have our ties and our connections and our very fond memories. And this year her family asked to dedicate uh, something special that was in her memory, something that she would do, she would favor, she would appreciate. And, uh, and as we come together this year, what we've done is before every Chag, before every Yom Tov, we've taken a moment to learn together, to learn together, to walk into our Yom Tovs, into our Chagim differently, to be able to appreciate our Chagim differently. And, and as, uh, as in her family's words, we remember her a passionate about her Torah teaching in the women's education and community growth, Del Zest for life, Commitment to Judaism was truly contagious. May we be zoicher to continue following in following her lead. And this our, our learning this evening will be Lilo Nishmas, Dina, Esther, Bas Yitzchak, and Rina Liba Zechrona Levracha. Bezrad Hashem Nishmasa Eden should have a continued alias Nishama. I also want to, uh, to acknowledge that our our uh, our. Uh, Parnasayam today, just as we marked today, the sixth of Ada was Anne and Shelley Galambek, and I've been Zev Galambek upon um, Mr. Hyman Galambek's Yorzai, Pinchas, Ben Moshe Yosef, and tonight the incoming Parnasayam Marjorie and Steve Kellner upon the Yorzai of Steve's grandfather, Leo Kellner, Yehuda Leib, Ben Moshe Alavar Shalom. It's a special opportunity every day to have learning um, in our shul under our roof in their memory. Um, this evening we are incredibly blessed and we have the source of welcoming in a really a, a world-renowned speaker, a teacher, a person who I, I don't really know how he has enough time in the day to be able to be teaching all the amounts of 
Torah and the reach and inspiration in our community and beyond. Um, Harav Mansur is a, it comes from a rich legacy of Syrian Sephardic Jews and is now a, a teacher, the Rav of the Edmund J. Safra Synagogue in Brooklyn, in, where he continues to spread, spread Torah. And not only that, but all in his discourse online as well, whether it is the Daily Halakha discourse, the Daf Yomi, all the various locations that we have the opportunity, if we have not yet had the opportunity, of continuing to learn from him. And one week before Purim, we have this aperture, this moment, to ensure that this Purim will not be just like any other. We have the opportunity, every Yom Tov, we have the opportunity of putting on something, a new piece, of article of clothing. But much more important than an article of clothing is every Yom Tov we walk in with a new idea, with a new perspective, with a new invigorated step. And this is our opportunity this year. B'chavod Rav. Let us welcome our answer. Thank you, Rabbi Trump, for that very generous introduction. I don't like to think too much about how I do it. Baruch Hashem, the days stretch, and we have a lot of siyata deshmaya. I know the rabbi is humble. He has just as daunting a schedule as I probably have. And uh, it's great to be here tonight. A few days before Purim, it gives us a chance to prepare for the upcoming Hag. Well, I'll begin with Megillat Esther, a question that I had this year when I was preparing my dirash. I want to tell you how the dirash came about. So I open up the Megillah, see what jumps out at me, and a question that is going to seem as an odd question, but I think it's a very strong question, and then becomes the basis of my dirash tonight. When we open Megillat Esther, we see the expected characters that we're familiar with. Ahasuerus, his first wife, Vashti. Of course, Queen Esther, Mordechai, those are the Sadiqim. We have some smaller characters like Bikta Bateresh, there's a Hatach. Harbona has a cameo appearance at the end. We know all these, uh, all these players. And then, of course, the most obvious of all the characters of Purim is the villain. You can't have a story without a villain. And that's, of course, Haman. And he's the anti-Semite, and he has the diabolical plan to kill all the Jewish people in one day, which is probably the most bold and aggressive plan ever in history. Hitler gave himself five years. Haman gave himself one day, and he had the plan devised and the machinery to kill all the Jews, and everybody expects him to be the most obvious uh, character and villain of the story. Haman belongs on Purim. And as a matter of fact, our rabbis tell us, if you uh, get drunk on Purim, you have to ask your rabbi permission first, or your, your spouse. But the point is, if you get drunk on Purim, they say so drunk, until you don't know the difference between Arur Haman and Baruch Mordechai. So he's a key figure with Mordechai and Aman. My question is, we have four exiles. Very quickly, there's Galut Bavel, which was a very short exile, it's only 70 years. 
And then, after the 70 years, towards the end, we move into Parasu Madai. It's right at the end of the 70 years, we introduced the Hasverosh. And then after that, we build the second temple, Ezra Sofer. And then we have, in Eretz Israel a Galut called Galut Yavan, Hanukkah, Antiochus. The fourth Galut, which we're enduring now, in real time, is Galut Edom, or Galut Romi, or Galut Esav. Call it what you want. It's been the longest of the Galuyot, by far. It's the longest of all the Galuyot combined. We're pushing 2,000 years of Galut Esav. Now we know that Esav is the great, is the grandfather of Amalek. Amalek is the great great grandfather of Haman. So Haman belongs in this exile. It's the Galut of Esav. He belongs in exile four, and he showed up. The tradition is that the Nazis Yemachshemam v'Zikram have their origins in Amalek. I don't think anybody doubts that. So what is Haman doing in Parasumadai? The question is, who invited him? Now, I know Haman is not such an ethical guy that needs an invitation, but what is he doing in this Galut? He doesn't belong. Now, if you're going to tell me, but Rabbi, you need an anti-Semite to make the story. Trust me, Ahasuerus was just the biggest anti-Semite, the Gemara says, if not more than Haman. That should not be overlooked. I don't think the Megillah mentions it overtly for the simple reason that Queen Esther probably was worried that Ahasuerosh is going to get the first copy of Megillah Esther. And if he reads things that are unfavorable about him, so he might change his tune. So she had to be, uh, there might have been a little censorship on the way Megillah Esther portrays Ahasuerosh. But Rashi in the first comment, Vahibi me Ahasuerosh, who Ahasuerosh says that his name is mentioned twice. Who Ahasuerosh? Who hayar rasha mitchilato ve'atzofo? He was an evil man from beginning to end. Now I don't think Ahasuerosh got a copy of Bigilat Esther with Pirush Rashi, so he doesn't know that. He probably says, "Well, look at that. My name is mentioned twice in the first pasuk," and he probably was filled with kavod. But nonetheless, his name is mentioned to his detriment. He was an evil man, and some will argue in the Talmud worse than Haman. So if you need an anti-Semite, we have him already. He's built in. He's Asverosh. Why are we importing Haman from Galut number four and bringing him into Galut number two? It's a question that I'm sure nobody ever pondered because we're so used to thinking Purim equals Haman. And I'm coming along and pulling the, the wool underneath and uh, uh, I'm asking, what is he doing here? That's how it starts. So where am I going to find the answer? The theory that I have, whenever I study Tanakh, we always try to find everything in its origin and in its roots. Because that's where you'll be able to find all the, the secrets and all the hidden ideas in its origin. If you're in a laboratory, the scientist doesn't study the blue eye. He studies the chromosomes and the genes that brought the blue eye into existence. So if we're going to study Megillat Esther, we have to try to find the genome. We have to go all the way back to the laboratory and say, where is the first mention, the embryo, 
of Purim, and over there we can put it under a microscope, and we can start to see all the different molecules and cells of Purim, and enlarge them, and then come out with some important theories. So I started to think, Purim is a rabbinical holiday, as you know. But you must also be familiar with the principle that everything must be in the Torah. The Torah is the blueprint of creation. So anything that becomes part of our history must have its origin somewhere in the Torah. Now, we don't have Parashat Purim in the five books. I don't think the word is even mentioned once. You're not going to find the Hashverosh. Maybe you'll have allusions to Queen Esther's name and Haman, like the Gemara says. But my question is, Purim min ha-Torah minayin. If we needed to trace Purim in the Torah, where would we find it? Members of the jury, I'd like to present the theory. You don't have to accept it. It's coming from, you know, it's not, I'm not a, a rabbi of the Mishnah or a rabbi of the Gemara. It's the, some young rabbi from Brooklyn. So take what I'm saying with a grain of salt. But this is the way I'm thinking. I see corollaries between a story in Bereshit to the story of Purim. In Bereshit, I read a story of a Jew that has a meeting with the king of the time. And before you know it, the Pasuk says, the king takes off his ring and gives it to this man and nominates him to be Mishneh Lamelech, the second in charge, or we call that the viceroy. The only other time in Tanakh where I see a similar story, deja vu, is Mordechai. Mordechai enjoys a similar fate as Yosef HaSadiq. Yosef is nominated by Paro, and Paro gives him the ring and makes him Mishnah Lamelech, and at the end of Megillat Tester, Ahasuerosh does the exact same thing to Mordechai. It's almost the exact same words. He takes off his ring, he gives it to Mordechai, and he elevates him as Mishnah Lamelech. That got me thinking. Is Yosef HaSadiq somehow the founder and the one that holds the trademark for the holiday of Purim, does it start by him? But you say, well, it's only one coincidence. That doesn't prove anything. So I go a little further. Yosef had the following happen to him. He did a favor for somebody and he asked that fellow, just don't forget me. And of course, he was forgotten. That's when he interpreted the dream in prison. And he told the Sarab Mashkim, remember me in front of the king, I did you a big favor. And the Pasuk says, Velo Zakat. Only to remember him much later on when it was much more consequential. And then already it brings Yosef to his uh, stardom. Well, that exact thing happened to Mordechai. Mordechai does a favor for the king. I mean, more than a favor, he saved his life from the plot of Biktam Bateresh. You'd assume the king would remember that in real time immediately and reward him. But he doesn't. He forgets. Only to remember at a much more pivotal time that will benefit Mordechai and the Jewish people. So we see already Yosef and Mordechai share similar stories. Something else. 
there are two stories in Tanakh, and I don't think there's more, where we have a tzaddik or a tzaddiket, that their identity is unknown, and at a certain point, they reveal themselves to the shock of everybody around. The first story you know is Yosef Sadiq. When his brothers thought that he was just the viceroy of Egypt, not knowing that it was the brother, and at a certain moment, Yosef reveals himself, Ani Yosef, and the brothers are, are dumbfounded. Well, the same thing happens in Megillat Esther. The king is unaware of Esther's identity. He might have a suspicion, but he's not certain where she comes from. And at a certain point, the queen will say, not in these words, Ani Esther. And the king, well, the king was dumb already, but he becomes dumbfounded. And you see over here another very, very strong correlation. So my theory was that might it be the roots of Purim are in the story of Yosef. So I said, let me look at the text for a minute to see if we find similar phraseology between the story of Yosef and Megillat Esther. That will make my case even a little stronger. Look at the pasuk that I found when Yosef is nominated to be the finance minister to run Egypt's economy. So the pasuk says, and he, Yosef is talking now, he tells the king, Yaseh paro, paro should do the following. He should appoint offices. et kol ochel. And he should gather and collect all the food. Sound familiar? In Megillat Esther, you see the exact terminology. When Ahasuerus is looking for a new wife, so he gets the idea for the beauty pageant. And what's the language that the advisors tell him? It's word for word. Now, if you're not convinced yet, I found a word that is only written twice in the entire Tanakh. And that is the word Vayit'apak. Vayit'apak means he held himself back. When Yosef wanted to reveal himself to the brothers, but there was an audience and he didn't want to embarrass the brothers, so it said he had to exercise some self-control in the pursuit of the apak Yosef. The only other time that word is used is when Mordechai would not bow to Haman, and Haman wanted to kill Mordechai on the spot, but the pursuit says, apak Haman. He held himself back in order to plan a larger scale attack against the Jews. apak apak. I rest my case. That is enough proof to me at least that I see that Purim is hiding somewhere in the Humash in these parashiyot over here and Yosef has something to do with it. There's too many connections. But as I look around, I am sure that there are skeptics. And they're saying, we never heard any of this. He's going to come now and tell us that the DNA of Purim 
starts with Yosef HaSadiq. Uh, it's a novel idea. No one ever said this before. We've been around. We've heard Derashot on Purim for so many years. And now this guy's going to come along and try to convince us that Yosef, what are, his, what are your credentials to come and start saying Bikadushim like this? So for those skeptics, I'd like to present this piece of evidence. Now this is credential. Because it's a Gemara. It's a Gemara Megillah, page 16. This you're going to have a hard time refuting. Because here the Gemara tells us that when Yosef revealed himself to the brothers, he started to give them gifts. And it says he gave each one of his brothers a new suit, Egyptian cotton. And when it came to his full brother, Binyamin, he gives Binyamin five suits. And the Gemara right away has a problem with that. You're going to create the same jealousy and envy that you were a victim of. How can Yosef commit that same, uh, that same mistake? Favoritism? Look what it did to him. Now you're going to do it blatantly? So the Gaon Mevilna explains it really wasn't favoritism because let's assume the one suit that he gave the brothers was worth a thousand bucks and the five suits that he gave Benjamin were worth two hundred dollars each. So net value, it's the same amount. They're all getting $1,000 worth of clothes. It's just that Binyamin gets five suits. So the Gemara then asks, well, if it's the same net value, give Binyamin one suit as well. And the Gemara says, no, Amara Binyamin Bariyefet. Interesting, the rabbi that says this, his name is Rabbi Binyamin. He says, Remez Ramazlo. Yosef now is giving a hint actually a futurama into events that hadn't happened yet, events that would not happen until thousands of years, he was giving a hint to Binyamin, which was what? She'atid ben latzet mimenu. That one day Binyamin is going to have a descendant. That's going to go out from the king's palace, wearing five royal garments. And who is the descendant of Binyamin that wore five royal garments? Mordechai Ish Yemini from Binyamin. And how do you know he wore five garments? Our custom, which I think is your custom as well, we read this pasuk out loud. There's a few pasukim in the Megillah that the congregation says aloud, and this is it. So here you see when everybody reads this Gemara, I think they miss a point on it. I think they're so excited. Wow, Binyamin wore five garments, and that's Mordechai. So they're focused on Binyamin. But you know what I'm focused on? Yosef, because he's the one that revealed it. The earliest revelation that there's going to be a Mordechai and a Purim is right here. It's Yosef that says, now I'm sure the brother said, what are you talking about? What you, who's Mordechai? What's Purim? And Yosef probably said, listen, I'm getting a vision. I, can't, I don't want to ruin the story for you, but it's going to be something incredible. It's going to be a miracle. So therefore, the DNA in its earliest origins of the holiday of Purim was revealed to us not in Mikilat Esther. That's already late. The earliest prophecy 
of a tzaddik telling us about this event is Yosef. Now that's the Gemara. Now add all the other things that I just told you. And we see already, we have clearly located the source of Purim. So again, Purim in HaTorah Minayin, Yosef. Good. Now we have to put Yosef under a microscope and try to see the Purim element and how it's connected, and maybe we'll have some answers to our questions. No, that's the Hakdama. I have a copy here of a Midrash. You might have heard this Midrash. I have a very strong question on this Midrash. The Midrash goes like this, and I'm happy to read it tonight. Tonight, Zayin Adar, which happens to be the yard site and the birthday of Moshe Rabbeinu Shalom. And this is a Midrash that talks about Moshe Rabbeinu. It's in... Uh, Midrash Rabbah in Beshalah. Over here, the Midrash is asking, when Bnei Yisrael left Egypt, they got attacked by Amalek, grandfather of Haman. And Moshe was looking for a general to represent the Jewish army. So it says he chose Yehoshua ben Nun. Yehoshua is the first general. So Moshe Rabbeinu justifies the choice by Yoshua. He says, Zekenecha, your grandfather, Yosef, that's the grandfather of Yoshua, Amar, et ha-Elohim ani ketiv velo yare Elohim. You see, you come from a family of Yosef, and Yosef says, I am a God-fearing Jew. And if the Torah quotes Yosef by saying that, it must be accurate. It's not an exaggeration. So Yoshua, you are from the stock of God-fearing people, and we are waging war against the nation that the Torah depicts them as Lo Yare Elohim. Amalek is the epitome of Lo Yare. And therefore, if we are to neutralize Amalek, let the Yare fight the Lo Yare. You have to fight Yare with Lo Yare. And we cannot buy, find a more suitable Yare Elohim that have, comes from the family of fear of God than Yoshua Benun. And the Midrash concludes Yavo ben Beno ta Elohim Yare Yare Elohim. Let the grandson of the one that said Eta Elohim let him go lead the battle against the nation that is referred to as Loyare, the antithesis of Yirachamayim. Very nice. Easy midrash. My question is: hold it. Yoshua is the only one that comes from a lineage of a God-fearing person. Did anybody ever hear of Avraham Abinu? Well, in my Torah it says that God tells Avraham at a certain point in his life, Atayadati, ki Elohim ata. That's God talking, not Avraham talking. God is saying, which is for sure true, Avraham, you are a God-fearing man. So now when Moshe Rabbeinu comes to the congregation and says, listen, 
we're trying to find somebody that's capable of bringing down the lo yare. Anybody over here related to a God-fearing person? Everybody will be a candidate. It'll be, it'll be hard for Moshe not to find a candidate because we're all related to Abraham. So the first one raises his hand. Yes, I am a, a grandson of a yare. Who's your grandfather? Abraham. Ah. Anybody else? Well, I'm also from Abraham. Besides Abraham. I mean, he was great. Don't get me wrong. But anybody else come from a different brand of Yirat Shamayim? Yeshua raises in. Who you, where do you come from? I come from Yosef. Oh, and what did Yosef say? Well, he said, That's what I'm looking for. And I'm asking, is there a difference between the Yirat Shamayim of Abraham that we all have in our DNA? Obviously, there must be because Abraham's Yirat Shamayim would not make anybody qualified to be the general. What is so special about the brand of Yirat Shamayim that Yosef has? And I guess Yoshua carries also as a descendant that Moshe Rabbeinu says, you're the one. Strong question on the Midrash. I was invited to give a shi'ur. So it's a shi'ur. We have to go through material. We have to go through sources. We have to ask pertinent questions. And then then hopefully we can figure it out. But we have to take it slow and go through the sources correctly in order to come to proper conclusions. That's what a shi'ur is. Now let's open up Migilat Esther for a minute. And this, to me, is incredible because you read this conversation. It's a very small conversation, short, I should say, between Queen Esther and Mordecai. Probably the most simple conversation you're ever going to read in Tanakh needs no commentary. It's, 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 it's right in front of your eyes, and it's obvious what Queen Esther says, and it's obvious what Mordecai answers. I'll give you the text. Mordechai finds out through Ruach HaKodesh that the Jewish people are going to be victims of a genocide. He knew this from a, from a divine inspiration. So he's got to tell the queen. Uh, so he goes into the palace area and he puts on sackcloth and he starts to make a big spectacle and he starts to scream and they come to Queen Esther and say, well, your uncle's out there and he's, uh, it's not the Shabbat, but it looks like the Shabbat. It was only a few days before Pesach, and he's acting like the Shabbat. You better go find out what's, uh, what's going on. So she sends one of her agents, or one of her runners, Hatach, let's say, and he goes out and he says, listen, the queen wants to know, which in the vernacular means, what's going on here? And Mordechai says, oh, she wants to know what's going on? So, and Mordechai then says to the runner, well, this is all that's going on. She asks the question, and he gives the answer. Simple as that. You don't even need the English for this. It's Pashut, Peshutok, Mashmao. The Gemara has commentary. Usually when the Gemara gives commentary, it's to make things clearer and to elucidate it. I am sorry to tell you, 
the Gemara over here in its elucidation takes the most simplest conversation, dialogue, and turns it into the most complicated back and forth that I struggle to even understand now what was, his, what was her question and what, what was her answer. And I'm asking Gemara, what was the matter? We understood it. You didn't need to take something that was fixed and then break it. What does the Gemara say? Gemara says, oh, mazeh ve'al mazeh. That's code word. Because if you look in the Torah, there's a text that has exactly those letters. It doesn't say mazeh ve'al mazeh, but it says mizeh u mizeh. And it's referring to the tablets. The luchot. When Moshe Rabbeinu brought down the tablets of heaven, so if you know anything about the tablets, they were chiseled. But how were they chiseled? They were chiseled not only on one side, they were actually chiseled through and throughout. It was actually a miracle. You could read the tablets and the writing on the tablets on both sides. It wasn't uh, on the other side reversed like ambulance. You, you, saw, it, you saw it on both sides in, in, in regular writing. And the Torah says about the Luchot, The tablets are written, They're written on both sides. So Queen Esther's question to Mordechai is like this. It seems like we're in trouble. I mean, you're wearing sackcloth, you're sitting on the floor, you're in mourning. It's got to be because the Jews are committing sins. So she says, is it because they have transgressed the law of the tablets that are written, mize u mize? Have they transgressed the double-sided tablets? And I'm saying, that's a very complicated way of asking, are they committing sins? That's really the question. What sin are they committing? So she, t- by the way, if she wanted to invoke the tablets, she could have just said, are they in contempt of the tablets? Instead, she says, are they in contempt of the tablets that have a feature? And what's the feature of the tablets? They are written, as if that feature makes a difference. Does it make a difference if it's a one-sided law or a two-sided law? I don't think so. By the way, my Torah that I have in the Ark is one-sided. Now, if I have a member of my congregation that's committing a sin, and I tell him, hey, I saw you eating not kosher the other day. Hey, listen, on the back of the Torah, it doesn't say anything. I'll say, yeah, but, but on the other side, it says, well, until it says it on both sides, I'm not obligated. You don't need, you don't need a double-sided law to bind you. It's enough if it's written on one side. But Queen Esther comes along and says, is it because they are transgressing the Torah that's written, mizeh u mizeh? Very strange question. But okay, let's hear Mordechai's answer. Now Mordechai's answer has to be yes. Yes. Are they transgressing the Torah? Yes. He doesn't say yes. Et kol karahu. He says to her all that has occurred or transpired. Now the word karahu is a buzzword again. The Gemara says, oh karahu, we know that word. Because when the Jewish people left Egypt, and Amalek came to attack, it says, Asher karecha baderech. He met us on the road. 
karecha. So Amalek, we have that word karecha. And Mordechai says, asher karahu. So Mordechai tells Esther, ben beno shel karahu. He's back. The grandson of that karecha guy that met us when we came out of Egypt, ben beno, his grandson Haman, he's here. He's on the prowl. That's Mordechai's answer or, or, or response. But that doesn't answer her question. It's like they're talking two different languages. She's asking, did they transgress the law of the tablets that's written on both sides? And he says, huh, Haman. We're definitely missing something here in the translation. Unless you tell me, well, this is Mossad. Listen, they can't talk, uh, they can't, they're talking in code over here. They're, people are listening, there's eavesdrops, stuff like that. So they knew what they were talking about. He, he, she's talking about tablets and he's talking about Haman. But it's, as long as they know what's going on, it's fine. The reader is not supposed to know what's going on. But the Gemara is not trying to give us, you know, Morse code here. The Gemara is trying to make it clearer. So we need to try to understand what this conversation was. All right. I think we did enough questions for one shiur. Now let's start to, uh, let's try to find clarity. Let's try to give answers now. So I came across a very, very beautiful clarity and elucidation from uh, a rabbi called the Magid from Slanum. It's a Sefer Afikir Yehuda. It's a very interesting concept, he says. Amalek is the enemy number one. We know that. They're the first always to attack. Amalek. We have a list of anti-Semitic nations. Amalek has to be on top of the list. Even when we came out of Egypt, where we were untouchable, we were on fire. And Amalek has the audacity to attack. He doesn't care. He'll get burnt just to attack the Jewish people. Where was the attack, the original attack, the first location where Amalek attacked us? Well, Torah tells it to us. You're going to read it on Shabbat. We also have the same custom. We all read Parashat Zachor. Amalek hated Sepharadim and he hated Ashkenazim. He hated all of us. So in that sense, we have something in common. So in Parashat Zachor, it's going to tell you the location. Zachor et asher asalecha amalek baderech. Remember what he did to you on the derech. Okay. Anybody know where derech is? Asher karecha baderech. You'll read the Haftarah this week. It talks about Shaul and his uh, 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 interaction with Amalek, with Agag. And it'll say, oh, the Amalek that attacked us, and I take out the map and I'm looking, where is, where is this place? No, Rabbi, it's not a location. means on the road. Oh, so it's, it's really nowhere. It's somewhere, but we don't know where it is. So why would the Torah tell us a location, that's not a location. So skip it. Just tell us. Remember what Amalek did. Either tell me the zip code and the place where it is so I can visit it. 
Or don't tell me anything. Instead, it tells me, remember what Amalek did. And if you want to know where he did it, it was on the derech. And uh, on the tennis court, they call that no man's land. Which means it's, it's nowhere. Derech could be anywhere. Says the great rabbi from Slonim. He says, ah, Amalek's M.O. He attacks B'nai Yisrael. Dafka. For Amalek, that's very significant. Why? Because he knows something about the Jewish people. Sometimes our enemies know more about us than we know about ourselves. The Baal Shem Tov said, Sometimes we have to go to our enemies and they can give us a lesson on, on Judaism. Of course, they study it in order to undermine it, but during their analysis, they come up with some truths. Amalek believes that if B'nai Yisrael will have protection, it's only in Eris Yisrael. They have a guardian angel, they have maybe a god, and Amalek's belief, and that's in Israel. Every nation has their protection in their country. And B'nai Yisrael also have a spiritual protection, Davka in Eris Yisrael, but as long as they're outside of Eris Yisrael, on the derech, on the way to, they're vulnerable. And you know why they're vulnerable? Because God doesn't really interact with the Jewish people in exile for the simple reason because Jews don't interact so much with God during exile. I don't have to bring you a proof for that. Fikir Yehuda, just look at what Galut America has done to the Jewish people on this derech. We've been on this derech for 2,000 years. We're at the tail end of it, I have no doubt. And look at the uh, collateral damage to the Jewish nation as a result of being away from Eretz Yisrael, not having the Beit HaMikdash, not having all the, the spiritual amenities that, the, that, that in the, the olden days that we had. Galut takes its toll on the Jewish people through osmosis, the decadent society and the degeneracy that surrounds us, it seeps in. Again, all present company excluded, of course. We're the good people. But unfortunately, the melting pot of America, so people melt. They melted into the society, assimilation, we don't have to talk, we know it, we see it. The values, there's no more values. What values? What am I talking about values? Amalek knows that. And therefore, Amalek will always attack on the derech. Derech means in between points. You're leaving Egypt, you're on the way to Israel. In this area over here, you're outside. And that's where B'nai Israel becomes susceptible to outside influences, and that's where they become susceptible to forgetting God. That's where they become susceptible to shedding some of their religious ideals, and that awakens Amalek. Derech is not a location. Derech represents a matzav. It's a situation that B'nai Israel find themselves in. And Amalek will always capitalize on it. When he sees B'nai Israel sleeping at the wheel, when he sees they're starting to shed and become a little sluggish in their service because they're in exile. Hey, listen, we know what happened here. When our great-grandparents came, I'm talking about my community, 
They told them, listen, it's America, in the old country, you have to keep Shabbat and all these other things, you have to make a living, it's not so simple. They don't have Shabbat over here. Uh, it's a good custom, but not here in America. And a lot of things, what you did in the old place, that's, that's what Galut does. And Amalek knows it. And when he sees it, he can smell it from 100 miles away, and he's activated. And he gets triggered, and he comes in. Now let's go to our story of the Jews of Parasumadai. We know the Jews of America, but I think the Jews of Parasumadai we're experiencing what we're experiencing here. There's no new sins. It's the same thing over and over again, just different languages, different locations in the world, but it's the same story again. They go to the party. <clears throat> That's the Gibaraz sin. <clears throat> they go to the party of Hashverosh and they enjoy the party. Now we can debate that they have kosher food, that they have kosher Let's assume they didn't have kosher food. Let's, I don't think Haman's, uh, Hashverosh's wine was kosher. How do you have a mashkiach We can't trust the mashkiach in the kosher restaurant. You're going to trust the mashkiach in Hashverosh's kitchen. It's impossible. But they enjoyed it. And this guy's prancing around with the clothes of the Kohen Gadol. And B'nai Siller enjoy. It's as almost as if to say, listen, they forgot about that old tradition. They forgot about the temple. The clothes of the Kohen Gadol are just a costume now. They're Persian Jews. They're Persian first. Jews is, uh, you know, uh, ancestors. That's all it is. But it was more than that. Haman saw something else. Haman tells the Hashverosh, Yeshno Abehad. Yeshno, there is a nation. And the Gemara right away says, Haman was clever. He wasn't just telling Hashverosh, Yeshno, there is, but the words Yeshno can be read, Yashnu. They're sleeping. Haman sensed it. They are sleeping. The party is just an indication of a bigger problem. B'nai Yisrael started to drift and drift away from the Torah and the mitzvot. Assimilation. They were living good. And Haman said, hey, I know that I'm not supposed to attend the Galut until the fourth exile. But guess what? I can't pass up this opportunity. And my question was, who invited Haman? We invited him. We're on the Derech. That's his place. We're not in Israel. We're on the way to Israel. It's almost the 70 years are up. We're trying to make our way back to Israel. And we start to fall from our religious level. So Haman says, I don't have to wait for the fourth exile. I'm able to show up now. Haman doesn't belong in Parasu Madai. But if you invite him, he's going to show up. It was our delinquency in service of Hashem, Yashnu. As long as Haman thinks we're sleeping at the wheel and we're sleeping on the road, he will, he will make us pay for it. Now let's go back for a minute. We all know that those Jews that believe that religion and religious service is exclusively in Eres Yisrael, when there's a temple, that's a falsehood. There could be nothing further from the truth. Our Torah, by the way, I remind you, 
Where was it given? It was given outside of Eretz Yisrael. Could you believe it? The, the, the greatest, most monumental moment in history. Wouldn't you think you could find a holier place than, than the Saudi Arabian desert? I mean, Ma'arat al Tomb of the Fathers and the Matriarchs. That would be a great place for Matan Torah. Kevin Ahel. And we had locations that were holy in Israel. No, God chooses an off location. Actually, the Torah was given on the derech. On the way. Specifically so nobody should make a mistake to think that this Torah and its mitzvot are only an Israel project. Yes, in Torah keturat Eretz Yisrael, and for sure in Eretz Yisrael you might get extra points, and it's a higher level of concentration. I cannot deny that. But do not think for a second that the law has uh, any less uh, uh, pertinence or relevance outside of Eretz Yisrael. It's a law that has no zip code. And it's not bound by location. But Galut causes you to forget that. Based on this, look at the Gemara that I found. The Gemara is in Shabbat. Here it is. Andat Kufdalad. This is the Gemara that actually talks about the Luhot that are chiseled on both sides. This is the source of it. And Rabbi called Rav Hizda explains the phenomenon of the two-sided tablets. And he writes, Rav Hizda, Kitab the writing of the Luhot, Nikra, can be read, Mibifnim, Vinikra Mibahutz. It can be read on the inside, and it can be read on the outside. I wouldn't have expressed it like that. If I have luchot, what's the inside and what's the outside? I would have said front and back. Or actually, front and front. I mean, I don't even know which is the back. Why does Avchastah say the luchot were written bifnim and bachutz? I have a theory. In that language, Avchastah is telling us that the luchot are actually applicable Bifnim, when you're inside Eretz Israel, and it applies just as much when you're Bahuts, when you're outside Eretz Israel. And that might be the reason why the Luchot have that feature. It might explain why the Luchot are written on both sides. They're written on the side across the Jordan, which is Israel, and it's written on the other side, Chutz the fact that it's a double-sided luchot represents that its application applies bifnim and bahutz. And that's why the Hestah might have used that, those words to hint to us. Not the size of the luchot, but the location where the luchot must be fulfilled. Based on this, I go back to Queen Esther. Queen Esther sees Mordecai Crying, sackcloth, zakaged olamara. Queen Esther was a prophetess. She figured it out right away. She says, is this because they have transgressed the luchot that are two-sided? Meaning, is it because we have fallen into that misconception to think that the law does not apply in chutz la'aretz? 
Are we in contempt of the two-sided law? We have been in exile for 70 years. Before that, we were in Israel for 800 years. And all of a sudden, we were thrown out. And it took 70 years, and we declined very steeply. Yashnu Amihad. So Queen Esther is saying, is this a, 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 a result of the Jewish people not fulfilling the Mizeh Umizehim Ketuvim? And you know what Mordechai's answer is? Yep. And you know what the proof is? Look who showed up in Galut Parasu Madai. Ben Benoshel Karahu. Haman's here. And if Haman's here, the grandson of Karahu, that must mean that on this derech, we've lost the derech. We've, we've gone off the derech. We're off-road. And since we've lost our road over here, that arouses Haman. Once she heard Haman, he's here now. He's a grandson of Amalek. She understood right away. The guy that harassed us on the derech when we came out of Mitzrayim, when we started to be lackadaisical in our service, when we reached the Fidim, which is also a sign of lightening up our commitment. He was there. And here it wasn't the Fidim. Here it was Yashnu. We were sleeping. Very nice. Answers a lot of questions. The problem is I came to explain to you what Yosef has to do with all this. And I'm not sure anything I just said has anything to do with Yosef. And I'm running out of time. So let's fast forward the story. So what happens now? Obviously Mordechai and Esther are going to have to figure out to get the people back on the road. And they do an incredible job. Before you know it, by the end of the story, not only are the Jewish people not sleeping anymore, not only did they wake up, but they make a reaffirmation of Kabbalat Torah, and the Gemara actually says it rivals Matan Torah. And actually, if you put Matan Torah, Shavuot, when we accepted the Torah, and Purim, the Gemara gives the advantage to Purim. It was a greater acceptance. Look at this. Well, guess what? Once we found our way back in Galut and we recommitted ourselves to Torah Mitzvot, guess where Amalek is? He's, he's on a tree. He's not, he has no rights anymore. He lost his access. Our Kiyimuvi Kibbelu is basically saying it's a two-sided law. We're good. Amalek, you have no right to touch us. And that's why Haman disappears. Him and his, uh, him and his cohorts. And now the, the cherry on the cake. You know the rule, Ma'aseh Avot Banim. You've heard it, the Ramban says it. Ma'aseh Avot Banim says, whatever happens to us was pre-experienced by the fathers. They experienced it in a micro, and then it would come out as a macro in our history. Our national experience is the private experiences of the Avot. Now I know there's three avot, Abraham, Isaac, and Yaakov. But Rabbi Hutna, Alaba Shalom, writes in Pahan Yitzhak that Yosef Sadiq has a status, not of one of the avot, because he's, he's, he's a shevet, but actually he calls him a hybrid. He's an av and he's a ben. 
and he also is able to create Ma'ase Avot Siman Labanim. Rabbi Hutner puts Yosef in a special category. As a matter of fact, if you look at Yosef when he passes away, his passing is mentioned in the last Pasuk in Bereshit. Bayamut Yosef. About seven Pesukim later, when we get to the book of Shemot, it says, Bayamut Yosef He dies again. I think it's the only Sadiq in the whole Torah that it says he died twice. Why? Says Rav Hutna. Because in Bereshit, he's represented with the Avot. In Shemot, he's represented with the Shevatim. He's both. And as a matter of fact, when Yaakov blessed his son, he says, you are Evan Yisrael, he calls him. You're the rock of Israel. Now, go, go try to bless somebody. Come, you're the rock. It, it might not go off so well. What does it mean that Yosef gets the blessing of Evan? Says the Rav, Evan actually is a combination of two words. The first two letters of Evan is Av. And the last two letters of Evan is Ben. He says, you're an Evan, you're an Av and a Ben, you're everything. Where do the Jewish people in exile? Talking about us. I'm talking about Parasu Madai. I'm talking about Jews that are on the derech. Where do we get the strength to have Yirat Shamayim off location? Who was the first Sadiq that exuded religious tenacity and behavior and commitment outside of Eretz Israel? Yosef. The rest of Yaakov's family was at home. Bet Yaakov was in Eretz Kenan. When Yosef says, Where is he saying that? In Egypt. Yosef is saying, I create the Ma'aseh Avot that you could have Yirat Shamayim outside. And if Bnei Yisrael would come back in the times of Hashverosh and Mordechai, if they would come back to that commitment, you could thank Yosef. His Ita Elohim brings us to that ability today. If we're sitting in Galut, America, in a Shi'ur, learning Torah on a deep level, how do these guys have Yirat Shamayim in America? It's in their genes. From what gene? Yosef. What about Abraham? Yeah, Abraham was God fearing, but where? When did God say that Abraham was a God fearing man? At the Akedah. Where's the Akedah? In Israel. Haramoriyah. Oh, yeah. A religious man and a God-fearing man. Haramoriyah. That's great. But if you're going to fight Amalek, you have to have a Yirat Shamayim off location. We got to find somebody that has Yirat Shamayim outside of Eretz Israel. On the derech. Because you have to fight the lo Yareh with the Yareh. And that's only Yosef. And that's why Yehoshua is the only qualified general because he carries a brand of Yirat Shamayim that nobody else had. And therefore, when Yosef as Sadiq is giving the clothes to Binyamin, he basically is now presenting Purim to the Jewish people. And he's saying, I'm the father of Purim. You're going to go through a rough bout. You're going to fall asleep. There's going to be Haman. He's going to come early. You invited him. But don't worry. The accomplishments that I have done here in Egypt were not personal. 
the fear of God, the resistance of temptation with Eshet Potiphar and all the other things that Yosef did are going to guarantee that even if the Jew finds himself in a hostile religious environment, whether it's Parasu Madai or whether it's the United States of America, especially in our time, you will have the ability and the strength to overcome and Yerat Shamayim will be able to prevail. Why? Not because we're so strong necessarily, but we have a strong great-great-grandfather. And in that sense, Yosef is a father, and he's a father to all. And therefore he has bequeathed us the greatest gift. You could be a Yerush Hamayim on the Derech. I think there's relevance to this, the current events. We're reading about anti-Semitism in America, which should be definitely be concerning. I'm glad that this day of hate that they called turned out to be a lot of harer, which I should always be, and Baruch Hashem, Hashem Shomer Yisrael. And everybody's trying to figure out the solution. What's the solution? How do you, how do you stop anti-Semitism? So, we need a guard. Put a guard in front of the shul. Come to carry a big gun, big rifle, and it'll scare all the anti-Semites. We all have guards in front of our shuls. Yeah, feel a little safer, I'm sure. But didn't solve the problem of anti-Semitism. Millions of dollars that we're spending on research in different ways, I'm sure it's helping but didn't solve the problem. We're dealing with this for 2,000 years and we haven't figured out. It's almost you come to the conclusion that this is the way it has to be. It's one of these things you can't solve. But at least when we read Megillat Esther, we see a contributing factor to anti-Semitism. That when Jews in the exile are lax in their religious observance, it invites Haman. That's what he's looking for. He's looking for Jews that think it's America, lighten up. It's not the, your grandfather's religion. It's a, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a diluted version of it. You don't have to be so strict. You don't have to be so serious. Anyway, uh, we're not natives to say there's no temple. That's exactly the attitude Amalek looks for. And if we want to push him back and uh, revoke his invitation, it's to do exactly what you're doing. I believe with the Kal Kadosh over here in the young Israel in five, that you're doing a great service to battle anti-Semitism. The fact that you come out on a cold, snowy night in the middle of the winter, and you come to enhance your education to make a mental preparation for Purim, God in heaven says, look at this, they're not sleeping, these people. They're wide awake, and they're exuding Yirat Shamayim and fear of God, even after a long, bitter exile. These moments, God has to tell the anti-Semite, move away, move away. You have no right to be on the derich. If they're asleep, you're welcome. But when they're awake, you have no rights. So you have not only done yourself a service tonight to enhance your education, as the rabbi said in his introduction, but I believe when we come in moments like this, we do the nation a service. We're more protected and we're well-equipped when our nation shows the Boreh, shows the Creator, that just like the Torah is two-sided, we'll keep it, God willing, when Mashiach comes Bifnim. But in the meantime, when Bebahutz, we're going to keep it just as well to the best of our ability. And it is my prayer that 
just like the recommitment of Naaseh and Ishma, brought the Jewish people to the high levels, to salvation and victory. In our time, and I believe we'll all see it in our time, with our own eyes, the same miracle will happen, there'll be a turnabout. Asher yishletu ha-Yehudim, and the Yehudim will reach a level of dominance and shalita, hemma besonehem, uksem she'asa ha-Kadosh Baruch Hu nisim, la'avotenu bayamim ahem, kach ya'ase lanu nisim, bazeman hazeh, amen k'nilatso. I want to thank Rabbi Mansur. There's one person that I think deserves a special thanks this evening that I didn't mention beforehand. And that person isn't even here tonight to orchestrate this whole evening, and that is Natasha Sulowitz, oh. who facilitated.